Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. It does raise the question about a huge tradition history, if I can say yes. it, about about the flood, which itself is an interesting observation. Why do we have all these different traditions about this kind of a catastrophe out there? That's, a, that's an interesting question to, to ponder, particularly when people say that we're in a section that is that it, that, that some who are more skeptical about the Bible would label as mythic, uh, that kind of thing. So we've got, we've got some interesting things here, and as we've talked about before, what we have in the text is there, but the context for it and making the interpretation about actually what we're dealing with is actually quite complicated. Well, this is where it gets interesting because all of the ancient Near Eastern flood texts come from the same basic area, mm-hmm. the Tigris-Euphrates uh, flood basin. Uh, and there are there have been excavations at a lot of the sites, Eridu, Ur, Uruk, that are finding multiple floods, uh, local floods, the Tigris and Euphrates flooding uh, over several hundred years. The biblical text would seem to put it back hmm, 25, 26, 2800 BC. This is around the same time that you see the archaeological evidence in some of these sites where you've got flood levels, hmm. flood flood debris. The, the dilemma is, of course, as I'm reading the Bible, it sounds like we're talking about a universal flood. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at the archaeology where these texts are found, it looks that we're looking at more of a universal flood, all, or a local flood, albeit a large area, and that's where the rub comes in at this point. And archaeology, frankly, can't and solve that problem it can't for us. solve that problem. Yeah. And this is the problem we started with, the simplistic equation, and mm-hmm. the media does – like the media is not aware that – there was this whole tradition of flood accounts in the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. And so this new, this new one supposedly is part of this larger tradition instead of something brand new, spectacular that's come up. Uh, Christians are the same way. They want this one text mm-hmm. in Genesis and archaeologists show that text and you go, like, okay, the Genesis is one, a literary account of events in the past and it's part of a larger tradition, a recounting of this. and. And to me, I get excited because that shows that there is this rich tradition of a flood account, mm-hmm. and so let's focus on that. And so it is an important piece of evidence. I'm glad this you know scholar you know brought it to the attention, and I'm sure there's going to be more Old Testament scholars that are going to do research. And but again, what you got is the right stuff in the right place around the right time. Yes. Yeah. Now the, the the issue shifts in terms of what size boat, what shape boat. How big was the flood? But you've got the right stuff in the right place at the right time. Yeah, the, and and this gets tricky, you know. Now this is one I can I can talk about having been drawn into because one of the things that happens to me is that I get calls from media in the <laughs> when these things happen. And so in the, in the case of both this flood text and in the case of um, the Jesus wife text that we mentioned earlier, which of course as we said is not an Old Testament text, but it's an example. Uh, the the Jesus wife text is an interesting one. I actually was reading the New York Times story in my office when the New York Times called. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted your reaction. And they wanted my idea. Have you, you said, seen, I haven't uh, quite finished call, the article. The call yet. begins, and uh, you know, I know the gal on the other end of the phone, and I and, and she says, you know, are you aware of the story that we broke today? And I said, well, yes, I'm actually reading it right now. In fact, I'm looking up a word in. It was a Coptic text. I'm looking. up up a word in Coptic because I have a suspicion about what this word is, and I just wanted to see if my memory 
about the way this word works is correct. And so I was actually turning to pull out the Coptic lexicon <laughs> in my office as she was calling. And so, um, and and you know, and so we get into this conversation. And what I find myself doing with these initial reactions when this happens is almost consistently, and this is what I would say to pastors when you, if you're hearing this and you're thinking about someone comes to you and says, you comment, is the first thing you've got to do is figure out uh, exactly what you have. I mean, um, you know, what do you have? Uh, where did it come from? Uh, in the case of, uh, of the inscription uh, at the Talpiot tombs, the question was, you know, was there a patina layer that helped you to date it, or does this, you know, what, 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 act, what actually is the evidence that you're, that you're dealing with? And then the second thing that you have to do, particularly when it's a, a more hyped find and you don't, and, you, and you're suspicious that it hasn't been uh, properly vetted yet or, or released in an, in an academic way in which several people have looked at it, is to simply say, this is the first take. On, on what on what we have and there are and then begin to think through if, if I'm on the phone I'm I'm thinking through what questions would I want to ask about this find having heard about it for the first time what are the additional questions we need to ask to kind of get our hands around what the context is and if you're a pastor talking to people I think you just say this is the first part of what is probably going to be a long conversation again using the Jesus wife text as the example the original find is now, what, 18 months or more old. It, it was originally announced. The actual tests on the papyrus were just published a couple of weeks ago, 18 months later, uh, and now we're finally in a position where we are really uh, more formally vetting the find and getting our hands around exactly what it is we may be dealing with here. And even after all that, we're still left with, I've got a little piece, it's got eight lines, I have no context, and there's just flat not much that can be said about it, even if we assume its authenticity, which some people are challenging. So it, it, it stacks up like that. That's the way, that's the way it works. Right? That's, that's correct. And our reaction is when something new comes along, the focus gets put on that and it gets sensationalized, and everybody wants to weigh in and, and wants to know. And they want a opinion. conclusion. Yeah. That's right. And you, and you have to, pastors and people in, in, in Christian organizations really have to discipline themselves to say, we need to wait. Mm -hmm. We need to wait. Let's wait until the dust settles and let's, let's hear what people say, because otherwise we're weigh in too soon. The lines get drawn, and then oftentimes, and I've seen this before, mm -hmm. now it becomes a political issue, and instead of being able to have reasoned discussion, we're, we're fighting on lines. And I, I do think it's fair to say that if you uh, – and this is perhaps both the, the benefit and the curse of the net, if I can say it that way, is, again, I'll use the Jesus wife text as an example here. Um, what, what you have going on is, is a conversation among scholars taking place on the net. Uh, and so there are a good half dozen, I would say, quality blogs, if I can say it that way, coming from people who know what they're talking about. And they're staking their positions and making their case. It's this. It it, it, it may be CSI, but we may have uh, three units working on on this that each have their own theory and hypothesis about how, what what this is. And you watch that conversation take place. Now that's a genuine, if I can say, uh, scholarly dialogue about what it is that you have. And sometimes right. the fact that it's been hyped is good because it drives them to 
to people involved. to blog about right. it and, and to take a look at it and take a look at it as scholars and that kind of thing. And that can be a very helpful process. So what I find myself doing when I blog on these kinds of things periodically is I will collect what I think are the best three, four, five, six sites and say, if you really want to get into this and know what's going on, here are the places to go. They're giving you, you know, they're giving you the conversation that's really taking place that deals with the substantive elements of what's going on here. And you know, I've been also called to interview on these things. And I remember when the James Oshery was found. Mm-hmm. I probably have six quotes in press releases where I said it's authentic, it's not authentic, it's authentic, <laughs> it's not authentic, and they're just, and I'm like, you know, the reporter calls you and asks you, uh-huh. reporting this story, I need a five-second thing. And you're like, well, based on the content from what I read, it, it appears. That's right. It seems this way, but until I actually see it, until I look at it, until I investigate it, it's still going to be maybe. It could be this. I was asked the same thing with regard to the James Ossuary, and uh, and I remember the first question I had when I got the first reports uh, from the reporter was, um, well, I would need to have a report about the condition of this inscription. That's that's the first thing, that I, and I said the first question I would ask is, uh, is there was it tested for, and is there any any evidence of a patina layer uh, where where the inscription you know lies on the uh, on the on the box? That kind. Of, I mean, I'm asking the questions out loud that I'm naturally yes. thinking about. In, in thinking about dealing with this, and uh, and from what I read, I I may or may not have that information. If I find it later, oh yes, they they looked at it and there was a patina layer over it, so, so that suggests to you, unless that can be somehow artificially reconstructed, that you are dealing with a with an older inscription. Okay, that's that's one question answered. And and so as you get more information that's circulating in the public, because you're not actually doing the study yourself. Yourself, um, then you're uh, rendering the judgment according to more and more facts that you have. But again, it shows that you're subject to the amount of information that you get access to as well when you comment on this, which just means you have to be careful about, about what's said and you have to be aware of how much we do and don't know in any particular find. It's like anything in a court case. You hear one side, you go like, that makes sense, mm-hmm. and then you hear the other side. Mm-hmm. I have two kids. Mm-hmm. I hear one. I think you have the correct one. Then I hear the other one. No, no, you did it. Okay, now I need to start collecting the facts. To you know. Yeah, very, very. Okay, well, let's let that's that's the uh, that's the arc one. The second one that I wanted to be sure and cover is is the one on camels. Now, this one came with some what I would now regard as some real hype attached to it. And and here's what I mean. Uh, the story broke. About uh, about camels being uh, found in a certain area and what they dated back to and that kind of thing, and then the case was made, and this proves that the patriarchal narratives uh, about domesticated camels in Israel uh, really um, really is wrong. Okay, I mean I, I, that's what the headlines basically yeah. said. So let's let's deal with this particular case. First of all, um, what did we find? And secondly, what did or didn't it prove? Well, we found camel bones that date to the Iron Age period, let's and, say 10th century. And they don't in, come with In the, the Negev, where Beersheba, 
is located where the patriarchs, you know, Abram had his tent. Okay, and here's what blows me away. Those bones don't come with a little sign on them that says, these are the oldest bones of a domesticated camel. (laughs) (laughs) There's no tag on it, right? No. They're just bones. They were the oldest bones found in that area up to that point, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing yet to be found at a earlier site at a different location. Exactly. And so and, and so we if, if they had said these are the earliest bones we have yet to find, we have yet to find we have yet to have corroborated uh, the existence of domesticated camels in Israel earlier than this, that would could have been a fair mm-hmm. statement, but that isn't what was hyped. That's right. And and the the thing that makes it misleading is we have mentioned direct mention of the use of camels in earlier texts albeit outside of Israel, but still in the Fertile Crescent, going back to the time of Nuzi. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, 8, 15, 1800 B.C. We've got old Babylonian texts that mention camels. So it's not as if camels were not there in the ancient areas. And we have to remember that the patriarchs themselves started out in that part of the world right. as opposed to being in Israel. So that's another dimension of the interpretation that gets slided by uh, when this kind of a statement is made and it's not brought into consideration about what it is that we're looking at. When this first came out, a reporter called me to report on it. and. I was like, there are so many things wrong with it, I, I cannot. It, it's, <laughs> Where do I start? You, you, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. asking me, if somebody asks you, you know, yeah. can you prove you, didn't beat, you don't beat your wife? Yeah, I, I yeah. go, how can I prove? Yeah. It's such a poorly formulated interpretation that no archaeologist would say that. I don't, when I find pottery, I don't say, well, this proves that this only occurs at this time. And when you're, you're talking about a needle in a haystack, mm-hmm. when you look at the osteological evidence on an archaeological site. Osteological means? Uh, uh, bones. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you, it's very small. We're dealing with statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't find fish bones. Mm-hmm. Now, that's because fish bones very rarely survive the archaeological process. You find them if you have wet sieving and you have a micro mesh, mm-hmm. but then you're literally spending, you know, two hundred thousand dollars to find fish bones on mm-hmm. a site. And think about this: where are most digs being conducted? On tells where there were cities, and you're typically digging in houses and buildings. When a camel dies, mm-hmm. are you going to bury your camel inside of your house? Mm-hmm. You know, so in, just in terms of where you're expecting to find these things, mm-hmm. uh, if if even if they're eating, you know, the the camel meat and things like that, you you still don't find they don't pile up their bones, you know, within their house. So, and yet you find some surprising things happen with something like this. I, when I also responded to this mm-hmm. in public on a and not just on a blog, I actually approached a, a blog to be sure that what I said wouldn't just be on my own site. And uh, and what triggered me on this one was there was a professor of Old Testament from a well-known university. If I said the name, everyone would immediately know it. It's located somewhere in the Northeast. That's all I'm going to say. And uh, um, and and I'm sitting here saying, how can someone 
who understands a little bit of the discipline, you know, actually make these kinds of statements. And what it tells you is is that sometimes you literally are dealing with spin. And uh, and that was actually the point of my blog response was to say, what you're getting here is not just the reporting of the archaeology. You're actually getting a spin on it that's that's important to be aware of as well. And I was trying to point out what that was and why that was. Well, and even the thing with the camels, that's been something that's been an issue since what the 1960s and 70s, and th- there have been articles and research done to show that you do have camels at an early, early period in the ancient Near East. But mm-hmm. there were a limited number of articles, it were limited audience, and so and people fact, are specialized in their disciplines are not always aware of everything. Yeah, in fact, in the midst of doing my own work on this, I found that there was a, there had been a dissertation written in German, in German, in Germany, uh, that had gone through this ground pretty, pretty carefully and had done a pretty good work. And some of the people who were aware of those discussions were surfacing uh, this research in the midst of responding to some of what's going on. Now, no reporter, <laughs> I don't care how good they are, is probably going to dig that deep unless someone tips them off uh, about the level of research that has taken place. So that's another thing that you have to be aware of. But the point of the examples is simply to say um, that that when you get these kinds of stories, the, the, the thing I habitually say in my blog is everyone just needs to take a deep breath, step back, and let some time pass and let the <laughs> pun intended yes. dust settle. <laughs> and uh, and in that process we'll we'll do a better job of perhaps of getting our hands around what's going on. Well when you and I were conversing about this a number of weeks ago, one of the expressions we used was that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm-hmm. You're looking at for a needle in a haystack only about 10% of all the sites that existed in the ancient Near East have been identified and dug. Of those that get dug, only 10% get dug in any generation. Uh, of the material that's found, only 10% of it surfaces on a popular level. So you really are, as far as what's out there. You have very partial remains of what right. actually existed. Yeah. It's very, very important to always remember. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, well, we've got a little bit of time left. Let me let me let me ask you this question: What what are some other um, Famous, and I think we can just list them. We may, if 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 it's worth going into a little detail, we'll stop. But uh, what are some of the other key finds? It's a horrible question uh, that exists that that show the value and limits of uh, of the area of archaeology. I know there have been some recent 
texts and inscriptions and that kind of thing that, that do this for us. What are some of the more important ones that people should be aware of? Are you asking about texts or material artifacts a, 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 or a, sites? It's a wide open question. Just take us to wherever you feel like. A, I mean, there are all kinds of texts. I think I'm, I'm more interested. There could be some texts that are very, very important for some disputes. For example, I'll go ahead and set this up a little bit. There are claims that, that any text that predates um, well, depending on how minimalist you are as an interpreter, um, anything that predates the exilic period um, is 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 automatically questionable. We just don't know the history before the before the exilic period of Israel. That's a, a radical well, position. Well, we've but. got all sorts of texts, and if we go, you know, outside the land of Israel, we've got what's called the Sennacherib Prism, mm -hmm. written by King Sennacherib in the fourth year of his reign, where he says that he came and invaded Judah, took down forty-six fortress cities, and then besieged the city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And that uh, that event is mentioned in Second Kings eighteen and nineteen. Mm -hmm. The story ends differently. Mm -hmm. uh, Sennacherib. Uh, uh, was besieging Jerusalem, and in his account, he called off the siege and took an IOU from Hezekiah and went back to his capital without any loot. The biblical text tells us that that was because uh, Yahweh smote Sennacherib's army, and so he went back empty-handed. Herodotus tells us that there was a bubonic plague that hit uh, Sennacherib's army. Mm -hmm. So you've got uh, so there's a there's a text. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's the it's the talking about the same event. But you've got three different versions that are giving you mm -hmm. different interpretations, but the ending mm -hmm. is essentially the same, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's how it's being spun. Uh, you've got the Tel Dan inscription okay, that was let's found. Okay, that was very important. It was mm -hmm. found uh, end of the 1990s uh, by uh, Baran uh, in uh, Tel Dan. It dates to about 850 B.C. Mm -hmm. It's an Aramaic text. Dan is the northernmost city in ancient Israel. It's an Aramaic victory stela. Uh, the, uh, it, yeah, it, stela is a uh, <laughs> okay. A uh, an inscription. Okay. 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 Uh, it was it was put up to uh, set up to commemorate the victory of the king of Aram over a coalition of Israel and Judean forces. Mm -hmm. And he mentions, although the names are broken, he mentions uh, the two kings of Israel uh, that he fought against. And he refers to uh, the king of Judah as being from the house of David. Mm -hmm. uh, so now this is not from the time of David. It's about 150 years after David, but still the king of Judah is mentioned Talking as… Talking Davidic dynasty. Davidic dynasty. Yeah. Ironically enough, it wasn't shortly too long before this that a minimalist said if, if there was a David, and I'm not sure that there was one, he was nothing more than a petty, chief, a petty chieftain over a small cow town. Mm -hmm. And then a couple years later, you have the Tel Dan inscription, and it's and it's interesting because it's an ancient, it's a foreign king mm -hmm. that's referring to the king of Judah mm -hmm. as from the house of David. Mm -hmm. So that tells you that uh, the, the Davidic dynasty couldn't have just been small potatoes. Mm -hmm. It was well enough known, even 150 years later, by a foreign king to refer to it as Davidic dynasty. And and just to just to piggyback on that, we not only have the Tel Dan stela, but haven't we recently uncovered? Areas that show fortifications and parts of Israel that show that that uh, whatever the expanse of the rule was, it's it's not a petty. We're not talking about a petty king. The recent Kirbet Kiafo mm -hmm. excavations, you know, uh, 
illustrate this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this leads, you know, when we're talking about this, like the David question, mm-hmm. this is a good illustration of how archaeologists debate. Mm-hmm. We come to the biblical texts or any historical event with a laundry list. Mm-hmm. Critical scholars, those who want to prove the Bible is not true, those who want to prove the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. We say if David and Solomon existed, we should find, and we say, well, they're kings, so we should find a crown. Uh, we should find uh, text. Mm-hmm. We, we, there has to be bureaucracy. There has to be et cetera, et cetera. If he was a great king, shouldn't we find one inscription with his name on it? We find inscriptions for all the other Judean kings. And the recent um, a couple issues of the Biblical Archaeological Review had mm-hmm. just a two-page, over 50 historical names found outside the Bible that are mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So we know the Bible is recording this history. We don't have it for David and Solomon. Mm-hmm. And there's many reasons we don't. One, the nature of the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. We only find a minimal viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, the interpretations. We, we don't find, you know, there wasn't anything that said Solomon was here. It'd be nice if we had graffiti. Mm-hmm. They just didn't do much graffiti. <laughs> you know, if, if Solomon was here, David, or you know. Or if they did, we lost him. Yes, yeah, know, just yeah. even something to say, I hate David. He's texting me too much. You know, <laughs> yeah. we don't find this text. But, and even students assume that. They come out to a dig uh-huh. and they think they're going to pick up something. That, you know, like we have made in China, mm-hmm. you know, made by Solomon. Mm-hmm. And it's like we don't. We have the interpretation. And that's the issue here. We don't have many evangelical archaeologists who can control the interpretation. It all comes to and pottery. Even, even royal seals. Yes. The, we, Israel didn't start adopting the practice of having them until about, what, 850, 800? So the, the practice was later. So you've got other kings that are documented because of these seals. But early Israel kings of the United Monarchy, it was too early for them to even have been doing that. That actually raises a question about digs that we didn't ask at the time that I had in the back of my head, but I forgot to ask it. And that is, how do we actually date uh, what layer we're on? Isn't it, isn't it by a combination of things that we find, like coins or seals or things like that, that tell us? You know, you know, I found a, I found a dime, and it says 1960. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Yeah, the the main thing is the transition or the change of the evolution of material culture. Mm-hmm. For example, you have an iPad here. Mm-hmm. We can tell when iPads came, and we start using them. Before iPads, we had MP3 players. Before MP3 players, we had Blu-ray discs. All the way to Gordon still uses eight-track tapes in his, you know, vehicle. <laughs> That's exactly right. But, but you know, we can tell based on our material culture, eight-track tapes become cassette tapes, become CDs, mm-hmm. and within a short period of time, we know the history. Now, one of the issues is you might have a house that is still using cassette tapes and CDs. Mm-hmm. It's a transitional period. Mm-hmm. You might have one holdout where I'm, all my music's on 8-track. I'm not going to change it. I'm keeping my 8-track tape. And so you come and you come to a neighborhood and you look at each house and what they have in their contents and you get a relative dating. Hmm. Well, we don't have any CDs in this household. So this has to predate when CDs were popular. And and it's really better. We don't have CDs, but we do have eight tracks. Yeah, yeah and yeah, so we can do yeah. it. And then you come to another one where you see both occurring. Mm-hmm. 
And you go, like, okay, this is either the 8-track era where the new technology is coming in mm-hmm. or not. And then you have other variables. You have, um, uh, you know, some technology, it's expensive when it comes out, so only the elite mm-hmm. would have that technology. And then it becomes more popular and you find it, you know, throughout, you know, different social strata. And so archaeologists have to account for all these variables when we see these changes. Of course, Steve is not finding eight tracks and CDs, but he's got different types of pottery. Mm -hmm. And there are some some types of pottery that have got a continuity all throughout the ages, don't change very much. And there's other types that that change dramatically. Right. Well, like the bone boxes that we were talking about in relation to Tapiat tomb, we know that that particular habit of taking the bones that remain and putting them in a bone box is limited to a certain period based upon the finds that we have. And so we know the moment we find this kind of a bone box, we're in this kind of a date range. That's that's exactly how it works. And and that's what, like the camel bone example, Mm -hmm. somebody will find and say this type of pottery only exists in the 10th century. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, that's true, but you have another type that occurs in the 10th and the 9th century. Hmm. You have one that occurs in the 11th and 10th century. And you have to develop these different histograms of types, and you have to look at the complete assembly. That's, the why, you have gave, to, that's why you have to be careful about what you dig. Yes, and, and you need enough data mm-hmm. to be able to make a statement. Mm-hmm. And so like if I only dig, dug one house, in that example I gave with the neighborhood, mm-hmm. there, that's not enough statistical pattern to date that house. If I dig 10 houses and I find out they all have eight tracks, I can date this neighborhood now. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing to the cities. Mm-hmm. Does this date to the time of David or Solomon? Well, I need to dig enough pottery to see if I have that representative sample. and and. That's why Kayafa was so important. This is a new site found west of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It was unknown before, and it's a one-period site. It only occurs in the end of the 11th, beginning of the 10th century. Hmm. So it kind of gives us a window. Mm-hmm. And the pottery you know, fits a certain time period, and you have a fortified site. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a good question, like, well, who built this fortified site of the 10th century? Hmm. Well, the only logical one is, is David or Solomon. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, the excavator, Yossi Garfinkel, says, I found an unknown fortified site of David. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I tell my students this, this site isn't in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's not even a biblical site. Mm-hmm. But it dates this time period. And the Bible doesn't record every single site that David fortified or built. We do know he was fighting the Philistines. We do know they were, you know, on the border. And this site fits on the border. And that's where these pieces come together for historical plausibility, where you go like, there must have been some kingdom in, with the capital mm-hmm. of Jerusalem that was protecting it, hmm. and we found a fort. And so perhaps we're going to find other chance finds. There might be other forts there. We might find a string of forts where we have that pattern, and all of a sudden we can find here's a border based on where the forts are. And so and it's, what's fascinating about that site, too, is that there's an ostraco, mm-hmm. a piece of pottery with writing on it mm-hmm. that mentions a, that mentions king mm-hmm. yeah the melech mm-hmm. uh, king well and that this explains something else that sometimes people don't understand sometimes people understand why don't we hear about why does it take a uh, an archaeologist, I'm going to shake the finger at yes. you, uh, so long to produce what it is that they found and it's because this is a very meticulous process right. that we're talking about 
And so it takes a long time to collect the data and to write it up and to, and to present it. It's, it's not something that's done overnight to get enough context to be able to say what it is you found in this square. Right. And correct me, Steve, if I'm not wrong, it's about a dozen years, isn't it? To that, that you start an excavation and end it. Some excavations go for decades, right. and you have to wait until the final report where everything's there. And if you found something that's sensational, the third or fourth year, you don't want to come out too quickly because you you have to make sure that you have all the data in place so that when you have your final publication, it's going to be solid. Right. Well, I'll give you an example. Our first year of Gezer, mm-hmm. we found a seal. And I don't think this is published yet, so this is your okay. your Breaking news. Yes. Breaking no, no. news on the Table podcast is the first time it's happened. Go ahead. Uh, we, we mentioned it in, in you know, um, uh, scholarly uh, you know, uh, meetings. And when it first came out, everybody said, oh, this is the proof. Um, now, Siamon is an Egyptian pharaoh, mm-hmm. and based on historical reckoning, this must be the pharaoh that gave Solomon Gezer. Hmm. Now, you can go reading your biblical texts. You know, Gezer was still a Canaanite city. Mm-hmm. And it just mentions, you know, 1 Kings 9, Pharaoh conquered Gezer and gave it to Solomon as a dowry for his daughter. Hmm. And so that's all we know about it. And so some Egyptian pharaoh, dating Solomon, we go, Siamon was the pharaoh. Hmm. And there was an article written like in 1948 about this connection. Well, so every scholar said, he got the connection here. And we go, but okay, we just found it in a fill. It looks like a destruction fill. Mm-hmm. There is ash in it, and, and it's beneath the casemate wall, which the casemate is dates to the time of Solomon. Hmm. And so they go, you have a Siamon destruction, the pharaoh who gave Solomon, and then you have a Solomonic building. What better biblical text do you have? And Sam Wolf, my co-director, and I just said, yeah, but this is sensational. Mm-hmm. We have to excavate a complete area. Well, after three or four years, we excavated, and that seal is not actually in a destruction layer. It's in a destruction fill beneath the casemate, but it's this whole complex of just that history of that one seal that we can say from Siamon. Now, I, I believe, you know, that it was conquered by a pharaoh. I mm-hmm. believe, you know, it was given to Solomon. But I'm not going to use that one seal and change things. You're being careful. Yeah. Um, now, it'd be nice for funding. It'd yeah. be nice to put on a T-shirt and say, we prove Solomon. But, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going beyond the evidence. Mm-hmm. And if we push too hard, you know, and you've often said, Daryl, sometimes mm-hmm. less is more. Mm-hmm. And sometimes more is less. If you push too hard and you say, look, we just proved uh, that, that Siamon destroyed Gezer and, and therefore the biblical text is, is, has been proved, a minimalist could come along and say, well, wait a minute. It, it doesn't prove that much. And then we end up being on the retreat, and people that have you know, stuck their, uh, uh, staked their faith now in that, mm-hmm. their faith would end up being destroyed because you know, we, we push too far. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, one of the reasons for doing this, and our time is gone now, but one of the reasons for doing this is to make sure that we don't make too much of archaeology, that we put it in its proper place, that we don't create expectations that are, that are misdirected because 
we've misunderstood the way the discipline works and the way and, and how we have to think about the discipline. So I really at the same time we don't want to make too little of our. That's exactly yeah. right. You want to put it in its proper place, and you want to have a sense of what it is you should be looking for, and how do you know that a, a report is is giving you all that you need, or is giving you enough context, or when you see the debate, understand this is why this is being debated because we're dealing with partial material and interpretations about how to put the pieces together. These these finds don't come with tags on them telling us what they are, <laughs> and so um, and so that's a very very important feature. Well, I'm sure we'll have you all back in the future to discuss uh, the next round of hype yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in relationship to the Old Testament. So I appreciate you coming in to talk with us about how archaeology works in relationship to the Old Testament, and we talked a little bit about the New Testament too, so I feel like that, that testament's been honored appropriately as well. And we thank you for joining us on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture and hope that you'll be back with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.